We are continuing on in 1 Corinthians uh, today, and in the last two weeks, uh, Jeff has been teaching on 1 Corinthians 5 and thinking about treasure in Scripture. Um, chapters 5 and 6 are really tough. It feels like you're not at the treasure part. It's the digging and digging and digging part, because they're some heavy chapters, but I think we'll get to some treasure today. And we're actually going to camp out in chapter 5 for one more week uh, before we move into chapter 6. And today I'll be focusing on the latter part of chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. So just to bring us up to speed of what's been happening in 1 Corinthians thus far, in chapters 1 to 4, Paul points out that these Christians in Corinth, they still have their value system patterned on the ungodly culture around them rather than on the teachings of Jesus. And he's calling them to authentically live into the people of God that they are. And then here in chapter 5, Paul starts to address a specific problem that is stunting their spiritual growth. It's affecting their health. It's damaging their witness to the watching Greco-Roman world. So we're going to read chapter 5 again. Uh, But before we do, just join me in prayer. God, we give you thanks for your word, for the way in which it tells us about your greater story and the invitation that we have to be a part of that story. God, this morning, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us soft and receptive hearts and eyes to see what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 5 goes like this. And again, he's, he's now addressing some big, big issues that are happening in this church. And he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you already are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But I am now writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. The word of the Lord. 
Jeff has been uh, teaching through this passage for two weeks, working through this chapter. And in week one, he gave us three takeaways. The first one was that freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. The second is don't be afraid to remove toxic influences in your life. Then third, he said, confronting sin within the church, as uncomfortable and awkward and difficult as it is, is actually a good gospel witness to the world. And then last week, we explored how and when we should confront sin in the church. So if we are commanded by scripture to confront, to confront unrepentant sin in the church, the question then is, well, should we then also be judging the sins of the culture outside the church? Or what is our relationship with secular culture? That's our focus today. That's what we're going to kind of be diving into. But before we jump into that, let me just give uh, you a quick framework that I found by Tim Keller uh, that I found really helpful on how he breaks down this chapter, how to read chapter 5. So he just breaks it down this way. He says, verses 1 and 2, we have the case, right? A member of the church is having sexual relationships with his stepmother. And this specific relationship is prohibited three times in the Old Testament, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And it was even unacceptable to the non-Christians in Corinth. Which, by the way, a reminder that the culture in Corinth was actually just as progressively liberal in their sexual ethics as is our culture today. And so even for them, they're like, We've got some boundaries, and this is a totally out-of-bounds relationship. Then in verses 3 to 5, there's the remedy, which is church discipline. Paul calls for the church to excommunicate this man who is doing this from their fellowship. And remember, our sensibilities tend to think that, oh, that sounds too harsh. That's not gracious. That's not Jesus-y. But this isn't someone who just slipped up or is struggling with sin, but growing and learning to follow Jesus. No, there's tons of grace for people like that. In fact, if we're honest, we're all on that trajectory of struggling in sin, learning to follow Jesus. But this is someone who says they follow Jesus, but is actively living contrary to the teachings of Jesus with a hardened heart. And so Paul calls for church discipline. To what end? Well, verses 6 to 8, Paul gives us the reason for discipline. He says it's because unrepentant sin is kind of like yeast. He's using an analogy. It's like yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough, and it infects everything. It's not just affecting the person who's doing it. It affects everything. It affects the community, and therefore it needs to be removed. Commentator David Garland, he uses uh, another analogy And he says, unrepentant sin is like a domino effect. First, it hardens the individual's heart toward the spirit of God. And then the next domino is they stop feeling guilty for their sin. And then it stunts their spiritual growth. And then it disrupts Christian fellowship. And then it damages the health of the whole church. And it hurts the church's witness in the world. Verses 9 to 13, where we're going to be hanging out today, are Paul's reflections on the relationship between the church and the world. And in my research on this section, I really appreciated uh, a teaching that I came across by uh, Cliff Ursell, a Mennonite pastor in Vancouver. And he highlights three invitations that this 
particular section of the text has for us on how the church ought to respond. Verses 9 to 13, he says, there's a call to authenticity, there's a call to facilitate repentance, and there's a call to mission. So let's start with a call to authenticity. We value being authentic people, right? This is especially true of my generation, of millennials, of Gen Z, to be real, to be true, to be authentic. Well, the Bible also calls us to be authentic when it comes to our new identity in Christ. But this does not always come easy to us. Cliff Ursall, he points out that Christians have this unique ability to give themselves permission to live lives that are contrary to the scriptures and to still be fooled into thinking that they are solid, committed followers of Jesus. That kind of hit hard with me when I reflected on that a little bit. Because I think, I know I have, but maybe we've all experienced this, experienced these kinds of moments of hypocrisy in our life where we somehow know what the text says and yet we have this ability to kind of justify ways of living that are contrary to the ways of Jesus. And it's in these moments when we are being inauthentic to the new creation that Christ has made us to be. A perfect example in the Bible is the story of David. David is this shepherd boy who became the king of Israel, right? He defeated a giant. And we know throughout the Old Testament how much he loved the Lord. The Bible even records him in the New Testament as being a man after God's own heart. And yet, David had this season of inauthenticity where instead of being a man after God's own heart, he was a man after his own lusts. And it had a terrible domino effect. If you know the story, it started small, it, it ended in lust, and it went towards rape and towards adultery and to the murder of somebody. It had a brutal domino effect. How does something like that happen to someone who does genuinely love the Lord? There's my domino effect. I don't think David just woke up one day and thought to himself, you know what, today's the day after my pancakes and coffee, I'm going to be inauthentic and I'm totally just going to go against what God's will is for my life, right? Cliff Ursel points out unrepentant sin always starts small and almost seemingly innocent. And he kind of dives into the story of David and points out how it happened to David. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says that when all the kings during battle were with their armies, hint, hint, David should have been with his army, David stayed at home. That's not sin in and of itself, but it is unfaithful. Then it escalates in verse 2, because he's at home, idle hands, nothing better to do. He walks around on his balcony overlooking the city and he sees a woman bathing. Then in verse 3, David gives himself permission to lust and it leads to further escalation. Because he's the king and he has the power to do whatever he wants, he sends someone to get this woman and he ends up taking what did not belong to him for his own pleasure and gain. And then in verse 4 and later, 
you see the unraveling of David living a lie. This life of in, inauthenticity. Cover up after cover up. And he continues on as though nothing has changed. I can imagine him thinking, well, I'm still the anointed king, right? I've been anointed by God. I can still call myself a man after God's own heart, right? But this inauthenticity, it ends up distorting his relationship with God. And then when God does speak to him in chapter 12, he actually doesn't recognize God's voice. And this is what makes unrepentant sin so dangerous. It hardens our hearts and it deafens our ears to God's voice. Um, I don't remember a lot about my grade school years, but I do remember one thing that my teacher uh, taught us in this Christian school that I grew up in. He was teaching us about our conscience and how it works together with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not quite sure how theologically correct it is, but it made sense. But he said that every time that we ignore the Holy Spirit's prompting on our conscience, it's as though we turn down the volume of God's voice in our life a little bit. And eventually, if we turn it down enough times, his voice is muted and we no longer hear God's voice prompting us. And this is what seems to be happening to David, and it's happened to the man in 1 Corinthians 5. And so Ursel concludes, he says, it's hard to pursue authenticity as Christians because it's so easy to lie to ourselves. So the question then becomes, how do we break free from that lie, from that inauthenticity? How do we make sure that we are hearing voice, the voice of God again and ensure that we are authentically following him. Not perfectly, right? We all struggle. We all make mistakes. We take two steps forward and one back. But how do we make sure that we are authentically following Jesus? This text keeps coming back to this truth that it comes from repentance. It comes from turning away from the thing that is leading us away from God and turning back to him. This is why I think Jesus taught his disciples to confess their sins daily in the Lord's Prayer. And when we don't, and when we have unrepentant sin that is not dealt with in our life, then it might require that fellow believers confront us about our unrepentant sin. Not in a judgmental, I'm better than you type of way, but so that God's conviction can actually get through to you again, and that repentance and restoration might be possible. And this is what happens to David. His story has a dark, dark section, but the prophet Nathan boldly confronts David head on and tells him that what he has done was a terrible sin. And then, and only then, God's voice comes through to David, and once again, it brings David to his knees in repentance, and he wrote Psalm 51 as a response. It's a wonderful psalm of repentance. It's David crying out to God, saying, God, please speak to me. Don't take your spirit away from me. Renew my heart. I realize that what I've done has been terribly wrong. Help me to turn from this and to turn back to you. It's such an honest psalm. Psalm 51. And so the second call for the church in this passage is a call to facilitate repentance for Christians who are in unrepentant sin. And we see this in verse 13 again. 
So I read this passage and I kind of wonder, well, what's the end of the story? Did the, did the person in 1 Corinthians 5, did he end up turning back to Jesus? Did he turn from this sin or not? And it appears that he did. Tim Keller, he certainly thought so. Uh, Tim Keller, kind of commentating on 2 Corinthians, he said, he says, I think Paul is following up in his next letter on this exact scenario. So if you want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it appears as though Paul is following up on this. And he says, the punishment inflicted on him, meaning this guy, by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And so it appears from this that the man was confronted, that he was disfellowshipped or excommunicated, and it ended up leading to his repentance. And here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is urging the church to now forgive him and reintegrate him into the fellowship of believers. Church discipline has a pretty negative connotation because sometimes it has been done unlovingly, ungraciously, hypocritically. But when it is done correctly in grace and truth and love, it is meant ultimately to be redemptive and restorative, not punitive. I know of one more recent story that I would love to share with you where this was the case. Um... I grew up in in northern Mexico, and I know of a church, two churches in Mexico. One of the churches, they had a member of the church who was actively in a drug cartel. I'm not making this up. And this wasn't just somebody in poverty who was caught in the wrong line of work, who didn't have other options in life. This was a wealthy, prominent figure in the cartel. And he and his family came to church regularly. Um, he tithed, so that money is questionable. And even their kids were in the local Christian school. Talk about living inauthentically. So when concerns were finally raised to church leadership, they couldn't get themselves to address this unrepentant sin, and they kind of swept it under the rug, maybe out of fear, fair enough but likely also just hoping that God would change this person's heart without them actually dealing with it. Well, in due time, there was another new church plant in town, and it was growing quick, and it was all the new hype. And everyone wants to check out something new that has a good buzz to it, right? And so this drug lord decided to hop churches, and he's like, I want to check out this new church. I want to be a part of this new thing that's happening. But it was well known in the community that this man was living a lie and that he was a prominent figure in a local drug cartel. So how did this new church respond? Thankfully, the leadership had integrity and courage, and they met with this man. I'm not, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but I assume graciously but firmly confronted this man and told him that this man would not be that his money would not be accepted at this church, and that if he wanted to be in their fellowship, if he wanted to be a member of their church, he needed to repent of his harmful and sinful profession. Now, I don't know how much you know about drug cartels, but one does not simply hand in a two-week 
notice and a resignation letter and get off scot-free. People who leave drug cartels usually end up paying with their life. And do you know what happened to this man? He repented. He recommitted his life to Christ. He abandoned everything related to his old way of life. And the church helped him and his family get out of the country where he joined a Bible school to be trained as a missionary of the gospel in South America. I am not making this up. Isn't that amazing? This is a picture of redemptive church discipline. This is why the family of God is called to confront unrepentant sin that is happening within the church. Yes, it is awkward and it is uncomfortable and it is invasive to our treasured privacy and Canadian sensibilities, but it has the power to turn the hardest hearts into some of the most devoted, authentic followers of Jesus. Last but not least, our passage calls the church on mission. Verses 10 to 12. What is our mission as the church? What is our relationship to the world out there? Is it to withdraw from the world, cutting ourselves off from as much influence as possible? Different parts of the church throughout history have at times attempted to do this. Whether it be the the Essenes during Jesus' time who withdrew to the desert and said, we want nothing to do with with, uh, our culture. We're going to create our own community, isolated and insulated from any outside influence. Later on, that was the spirit, not of all, but of some Catholic monasteries. Let's just withdraw and preserve the purity of our faith. My own background is guilty of that. The Amish and Old Order Mennonites. All groups who wanted to preserve the purity of the faith and not be corrupted by the world by withdrawing from society at large. But it's easy to point, picture, or to point the finger at specific faith groups throughout history. But this is something that can just as easily happen to us. Ask yourself, are all of your social engagements with other Christians? As a pastor, this is easy to do. My work is with Christians. My friends are Christians. My kids go to a Christian school. My volunteering can be limited to a Christian organization. Maybe you can relate. And so the question that I think we need to ask ourselves if we're maybe falling into this kind of withdrawal from engaging culture is, do you have any non-Christian friends? Do you take the time to get to know your neighbors or your colleagues at work or your fellow students at school who don't yet know Jesus? Do we consider volunteering our time in maybe a non-Christian setting, like helping coach a community soccer team or getting involved at a public school board or serving on city council? In verses 9, Paul makes it clear that he wants the Christians to engage non-Christians. They are our mission. John 3.16 reminds us that God so loved who? The world that he gave his one and only son. God is for the world, not against it. He is against the sin and the darkness, but he is for the world that he created. And in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples to be in the world, but not of it. Right? 
He knows that they are not to be shaped by the culture and live as though they are just part of a sinful culture. But he says, don't take them out of this world. My followers need to be in the world. So the answer is no, we are not to cut ourselves off from non-Christians. We're supposed to engage with them. So then the question becomes, well, how? Should we then be the moral police and judge non-Christians and try to force secular culture to align with our biblical values and ethics? This has been the response of some, and especially evangelical churches over the last 30, 40 years. But what is the fruit of that? What have you noticed is the usual result of Christians acting in this way, of going out there and saying, no, 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 bad, evil, no. What, what is the usual response? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Exactly. You guys are judgmental and hypocrites. You're not loving. You're just telling us about all the things that we're doing wrong and bad, and you sit on your high horse in your church on Sunday mornings. That is the perception that we give off if that is our attitude and our way of engaging culture. Paul is actually very clear about his stance on engaging culture. He says in verse 12, it's not his job and it's not our job as a church to judge those outside the church. He says that's God's job. So if the proper response of the church is neither to withdraw from culture nor to judge it, what is our role in engaging culture? Kathy Howard, uh, a teacher and a writer in the U.S., she reminds us that she reminds us of three biblical principles of what it means to be on mission as Christians. First, she says, we are God's priests, declaring his praises to the nations. This is from 1 Peter 2.9. Second, she says, Christians are Christ's ambassadors, imploring the world to be reconciled to God. This is from 2 Corinthians 5. And third, Christians are the light of the world. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.14. So let's just look briefly at each of these as our application. We are God's priests declaring his praises. What does that mean? Um, Paul says it slightly differently in the book of Acts, but it's, he's getting at the same thing. Paul says this about his mission in declaring God's praises. He says, in Acts, I believe it's 24, uh, maybe I didn't put it up there, he says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And here it is. What is the task? What is the mission? He says, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Rather than decrying the sins of our culture, and they are real, trust that God will deal with them. Our job is to focus on telling others what God has done in your life. What difference has Jesus made in your life? What hope and joy and love can others have by knowing him? That, Paul says, is our job. Testify to the grace of God in your life. Second, we are Christ's ambassadors. What is the role of an ambassador or an embassy? No, no trick question. You can participate. 
to represent. That's right. An, an embassy in any given country or city is representing another country, right? It's an outpost of that country on foreign soil. It's a microcosm of one country inside another. We are called to represent Jesus and God's kingdom in this culture, in this world, in this kingdom. Each local church is to be an outpost of God's kingdom inside the kingdoms of the world. We represent heaven on earth. In other words, the local church is an alternative society in the surrounding culture. So we are to model God's way of life as a community. And that is supposed to shine into the culture. We do life differently. We order our priorities differently. We live by different values that we are to model in the world. The way we recreate, the way we work with integrity, the way we rest, the way we handle our money, our priorities, the way we practice our sexuality. Everything, all aspects of our life are to represent God's way of life, as though God is in charge of our life. Finally, we are the light of the world. Light is compelling, right? It pierces the darkness. It offers hope. We are light, I think, when we live out God's truth. But the one that I specifically want to focus on today is we are light when we in the church love each other well. Really, how do we change the narrative of how culture sees us? How do we not come across as judgmental and hypocritical, but rather as light? It's not by being soft and simply syncretizing with all of culture's shifting norms and values. That's just blending in. We are not a light then. We are no different. Paul says in chapters 1 to 4, you are called to be different. But how do we change that narrative where the culture begins to maybe say, well, maybe they're not so hypocritical. Maybe they're not so judgmental. How do we make them curious to life lived to its fullest measure as Jesus offers it? By loving one another. Jesus says in John 13 to his disciples that they, meaning the world, they will know that you follow Jesus by your love for one another. I didn't get it. Why is it so crucial that Christians love other Christians? Like, we know we're supposed to love our enemies. We know we're supposed to love, you know, the people that we like. But why is it so crucial that Christians love other Christians? That's what Jesus says. Love one another. He's talking to his disciples. You see, it's easy to love our friends because we choose our friends, right? It's easy to join a club because you usually have a lot in common. You're probably roughly the same age group. You have the same quirks and interests, right? But even the world does that. What is so unique about the church, about Christian community, is that we don't get to choose who is in it. Sometimes we wish we would, right? But we don't get to choose who is in the local church. It is made up of people from all walks of life, from all different social and economic classes, from all kinds of backgrounds, different cultures and races, and people with all kinds of different political preferences. 
different from your own. There's young and old, men and women, children, rich and poor, people who look different, dress different, and think different, all under one roof. And when the world sees a community that diverse, who in their eyes think, these people have no business hanging out with each other. They're so different. Why are they all held all together? When the world sees a community of such diverse people who in their eyes have no business being together, genuinely love one another, that shines a very bright light into the culture. A New York pastor, um, I think he's from the Bronx, I'm not quite sure, but he shares a glimpse of this in his own church. He says there's this beautiful friendship uh, between this old white middle-class lady in a wheelchair. He says she probably grew up in a fairly white supremacist kind of culture. And she's the bestest of friends with another person who is a young Latino ex-gang member who recently got out of prison and has given his life to Christ. He says people just turn their heads in confusion on the streets because every Sunday this young Latino man helps this old lady get to and from church, pushes her around in the wheelchair, and they laugh together and they talk and they love one another as Christians should. And that makes the world very confused and curious. Cliff Ursel says that should be our job as Christians, to make the watching culture curious. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So engage the non-Christians that God has placed in your contacts. It might be your neighbor. Have them over for a barbecue. Spend the extra hour with your work colleague and say, let's go for coffee or get some wings or whatever it is. Share with them what God has done for you. Model an alternative way of doing life as a representative of Jesus and love one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up. God, we thank you that even in these heavier texts in Scripture, there is gospel truth, there is hope, there is redemption. So God, I pray this morning that if anyone here heard this passage and heard your word and is convicted of an unrepentant sin in their life, that they would bring that forward to you. Maybe confess it to another believer to hold them accountable. That they would turn from that unrepentant sin and towards you who offer life and life to its fullest measure. And God, would you teach us as a church community, both individually in our own homes and neighborhoods and workplaces, but also as a church community. Teach us to declare your praises in our day-to-day -day life. Teach us to represent you well, to give off the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. And teach us, Lord, how to be a light in a dark culture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.